This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. All right, good evening. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm John Bourgeois. If I haven't met you, uh, a really warm welcome to you. Thank you for tuning in tonight. And um, this semester, as we meet together, we are going to be reading the Sermon on the Mount during large group. And this is a sermon that Jesus gave during his life that he is recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. And tonight, by way of introduction, I just want to say a few things about the passage that Susan read for us and then answer the question, what is RUF? And as we look at this passage tonight, I want us to see two things. First, the terror of silence, and second, the voice of mercy. So first, the terror, the terror of silence. And the scene that's painted for us at the end of Matthew chapter 4 is we're told that Jesus has um, been traveling around the region of Galilee, which is this rural area north of Jerusalem, And he's teaching and he's preaching and he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And he gets so famous that people from beyond the the Jordan, which is Syria, hear about him. And they come too. And these crowds and these crowds gather and they bring their sick and their afflicted and people who are oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralyzed. And they bring him to Jesus and Jesus helps them and heals them. And I want you to see two things about this. First, in in first century culture, and still in many traditional cultures today, if someone in your family was diseased or disabled, um, they were kept in darkness. They caused your family shame, and so you would keep them indoors so as not to shame your family. But here, we've got these people bringing these people out, bringing out the diseased and the disabled and the demon-oppressed, and they're bringing them out because Jesus is there and Jesus is healing them. The second thing I want us to think about as we look at this this passage is um, to ask the question, what would happen if you took Jesus out of this scene? What would happen if you removed Jesus from this scene? I want you to think about the most crowded place you've ever been. Maybe it was uh, like a crowded party in a frat basement somewhere, hopefully not this past weekend. Maybe it was in a packed airport terminal, or maybe when you're filing out of a football stadium after a football game. And I want you to imagine that all the people who are pressing in against you are diseased and disabled and demon-possessed, thronging about you. And now I want you to imagine that you're one of those people, and there is no one to help you. And as I was thinking about this, the best way that I could describe what what this felt like to me was just darkness. The scene in Matthew 4 without Jesus is utter darkness. Why? Because there's something terribly wrong with the world that is both outside of our control and inside of us. So I'm not really a horror movie guy, but I've learned through every horror movie preview that I've ever seen that the premise of every horror movie is that there is no God, or at least if there is one, um, he is not going to save anyone. I mean, think about the last horror movie you saw or horror movie preview that you saw. Think about the premise, right? There is no God and no one is going to save you. And I think if we're honest, that's how life feels like a lot of the time. One of my favorite bands, the Avid Brothers, released a new album this weekend. And uh, the second song of the album is called, I Should Have Spent the Day with My Family. 
And in that song, Seth Abbott is singing about waking up early and then saying he makes a mistake of looking at his phone before doing anything else. I just want to read to you a couple lines um, from this song. It says, turning on my phone was the first mistake I made. My heart sunk when I read the first headline. There had been another shooting and this time not so far away. And a child who lost his life looked an awful lot like mine. I sat there in the dark for I don't know how long without the first idea of what to do. I walked into the kitchen, turned the coffee maker on, and stood there feeling hopeless and staring at the moon. I was wondering when God left and why he didn't say goodbye. And I think that captures what life feels like a lot of the time. I wonder when God left and why he didn't say goodbye. And we feel this both externally and internally. Externally, the past six months have just been awful. Um, Someone shared a meme with me last week, and the caption was, if 2020 was a scented candle, and it was a picture of a row of porta-potties engulfed in flames. (laughs) Like That's pretty accurate. Um, And internally, if we're honest, how we often imagine our future is more like a horror movie than we like to admit. I mean, think about how you catastrophize when you're alone with your thoughts. Dr. Henry Cloud, who's a psychologist, a clinical psychologist that I've been listening to recently, he says that when our brains get stressed out, it does three things, which he calls the three Ps. It personalizes, it makes things pervasive, and it makes things permanent. So personalize, whatever is wrong is my fault. Pervasive, actually everything is wrong, and it's permanent. Things will never get better. So question for you is, what does your horror movie look like? You see people on campus making friends, and you think, it's my fault that I don't have friends. I'm the only person at Wake who hasn't made any friends, and it will be this way for the rest of my life. Or you look at your syllabi for the rest of the semester, and you think, there's no way that I can do this. I'm the only person in my classes who can't handle this workload. I'm going to fail out of college, become homeless, and move into my parents' basement for the rest of my life. Friends, the good news is that Jesus isn't absent from this story and he is not absent from your life. He comes into the disease, into the disability, into the demon-possessed crowd, and he comes in mercy. And he heals any and all who are brought to him. And then he speaks, and his voice is the voice of mercy. How do you determine who to give authority to? Who do you give permission or authority to speak into your life? Who do, you, who do you give authority to give you advice, to tell you who you are, to encourage you? Uh, the great Mr. Rogers once said, from the time you were very little, you've had people who smiled you into smiling, people who talked you into talking, people who sung you into singing, and people who loved you into loving. Here's what Mr. Rogers is saying. The people who get the authority to shape you and tell you who you are are the people who have loved you and have shown you mercy. People came to Jesus to be taught because they experienced his mercy. And all of us need people to teach us. And unless someone with authority comes into your life and teaches you, you won't learn. You need a teacher. Look at Jesus in this passage. He has just established his authority with the crowds, these crowds and crowds of people. He has reversed the horror movie of their lives by extending the mercy of God to them. And they come to him weak and wounded and sinful and scared and afraid and suffering, and he heals them. 
Jesus shows us that God's grace moves towards you in your sin and suffering. It's like a magnet. He desires to be with you, not only when you feel like you're winning at life, but especially when you feel like you're losing. I've got a friend who likes to say that you don't fall into God's grace, you fail into God's grace. Jesus establishes his authority by being a conduit of God's grace and mercy to sufferers. The disabled, the diseased, the demon oppressed. Sinners and sufferers, you and me. And he does three things right after this that have a symbolic meaning that I don't want you to miss. He ascends the mountain, he sits down, and he opens his mouth. So what's going on here? Well, he ascends the mountain. And here's what he do, he's doing. By ascending the mountain, Jesus is symbolizing the absolute teacher. Just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive God's word for his people, after God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, after Jesus has healed these uh, demon-possessed and disabled and diseased people, he then ascends the mountain and sits down. So he sits down. Teachers in the ancient world would sit when they, were, when they were teaching. And so by sitting down, he's showing that he is about to teach in an authoritative way. And finally, he opens his mouth. And actually what it says here in verse 2 is that he opens his mouth, he taught them saying. And I learned this week that that's a literary device called an extended pleonasm. It's the use of extraneous words to convey a meaning. We do this all the time, right? You have to see it with your own eyes. It's a pleonasm. So why would he say this three times? Um, one commentator, Erasmo Levia Maricakis, he's got the best name. He says this. He says, this pleonasm bids us to lay all other thoughts and concerns aside because here utterances are about to be made that either invalidate or radically reverse every other human consideration of any order whatsoever political, economic, philosophical, psychological, or even religious. Jesus is the true Orpheus, the music whose mouth quickens with new life everything around him. Here's what he's saying. This is not just a man named Jesus from Nazareth sitting down to talk, but the very mouth of God that is about to utter the thoughts of God in human language. Notice here, there is no reference to God. There's no quotes or citations All of this originates from Jesus himself. No other man has ever uttered the very thoughts of God as coming from himself. And then what happens when Jesus sits down to teach? This is is what happens when Jesus sits sits down to teach. And so this semester, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to him together. Um, We're going to read through the Sermon on the Mount together, and we're going to listen together, and we invite you to join us on Tuesday nights to do this. So finally, um, what is RUF? So RUF is a place, it's a community, where we tell the truth about these two things. First, we tell the truth that the reality of life on our own is more of a horror movie than we care to admit. But there is a voice of mercy who sings out to us in love, who heals the brokenhearted, and who satisfies those who come to him thirsty. So what does this mean for you? Well, what this means, this means we don't have it all together. In fact, the exact opposite is true. RUF is full of people who are hypocrites and liars, who are fearful and shaky, who've done things, we've done things and have had things done to us that we're scared to admit. We're sinners and sufferers, and we have found mercy and grace and life in Jesus Christ. Dr. Alyssa Wickbrot is a college professor, and she says this about Jesus. She says, if Jesus is coming back to make all the sad things untrue, then the more sad things we know, 
the bigger Jesus must be to undo them. Calling out the brokenness does not diminish Jesus's power. It magnifies it. RUF is a community that is centered around Jesus. We're here not to hear me, but to hear Jesus and to be centered around him. And in this passage, there are three groups of people that come to hear Jesus speak. The dependent, the curious, and the devoted. The dependent, these are the ones with diseases and demons and disabilities who need Jesus for their healing. The curious, these are those who are watching Jesus heal people that they know and love, or watching people that they know and love follow Jesus, and they're curious. They draw near to hear what he has to say. And then finally, the devoted. These are the disciples who trust him and are following him. And the same is true for you. Maybe you're one of the dependent. You have had a profound experience of Jesus and his healing power, and you're hanging around to hear what he has to say. Because you have experienced his love and grace, and it has transformed and reoriented your whole life. And if this is you, we're so glad that you're here. Maybe you're one of the devoted. You've been around Jesus and his teaching for some time, and you want to continue to learn what it looks like to follow him. And if this is you, we're glad you're here. And maybe you're part of the curious. Maybe you've watched a friend or a family member be transformed by the love of God. Or maybe you have friends who are devoted to Jesus and you're curious as to um, why they follow this man who claimed to be God. Or maybe you're just tired of doing life the way you've been doing it and you're watching this on your computer because you think, why not? And if that's you, we're really glad that you're here. And regardless of what group you find you in, I want to ask you a question. Where do you need healing? Think back to that crowded scene, the diseased, the disabled, the demon-oppressed, living in darkness. Where are you in that crowd? Where do you need healing? When God speaks, the Bible tells us that when God speaks, he heals. The word of God heals. Isaiah chapter 61 says that God says he will bind up the brokenhearted. And then Isaiah 2, the prophet Isaiah says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. So he may teach us his ways so we can walk in his paths because the word of God heals you. See, Jesus is not scared of your brokenness or of the brokenness of the world. See, he is not only the one who speaks the word of God. He is the word of God in flesh. He is God's message to the world. So if you want to know how God responds to the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of your own life, look at Jesus. He is called the word because he himself was God's message. God's message translated into human language. Everything that God wanted to say to the world, he said in a person. God spoke the world into existence and then the word became flesh for us. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He he died the death that we deserve. He enters into the horror movie of your lives and moves towards the sin and suffering. And he took it onto himself. He's like a sponge to the mess of our brokenness and pain. And we see this most clearly where we see all beautiful things on the cross. For it's there that he carried your sin and your suffering to the top of a hill. But instead of sitting down, he was hung by nails through his hands. And instead of opening his mouth to speak, he was silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. And it's there, as the Savior you need, that he stood in the gap between you and God and took both the sin that you carry and the wrath that it deserves into himself so that he might give you his life. He might make you new, completely new in himself. This is the voice that speaks to us in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the voice of mercy. And as we close, um, I want you to consider the voices that you listen to, the voices that you give authority to in your own life, 
the ones that offer you a way out of your horror movie. And the ones that I hear telling me telling myself and the ones that I hear you telling yourselves are voices that say things like, try harder, do better, save yourself, work harder, keep pushing, pull yourself up. You got to keep moving. I think people's dying words, like their deathbed words, are fascinating. And they often reveal the, the, the voice that they live by. The Buddha, um, Buddha's dying words were strive without ceasing. And Jesus' dying words, the word of God made flesh, his dying words were it is finished. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this, that um, you give us this opportunity to, to be together in this strange way. Thank you that you are not quarantined. Um, Lord, Christians believe crazy things, that uh, you became a man and you died and you rose. And Lord, I pray for my friends that are hearing this. Would you help us believe? Um, would you help us make sense of our own lives in light of what you have come to do for us? Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what we're going to do now is we want to give you some time to split up into small groups and, and have a conversation. We want to connect you with other people. If you're watching this with a group of people, um, then we're going to give you some small group questions and invite you after the doxology uh, to just sign out of the webinar and um, to have a conversation with the people you're with. But if you're alone, uh, we want to give you people to have a conversation with, to meet a new face, uh, to connect with them. And so... Um, there will be a link in the webinar um, that you can follow that will take you to another Zoom meeting after this, a regular Zoom meeting that Susan, our intern, will be running, and then she will divide you up into random small groups so that you can connect with each other. And I'll just give you a couple of questions um, that I want you to answer together. The first, and these will be put in the, uh, put in the other Zoom link. First question is, Thinking about the three groups of people that Jesus interacts with in this, pas this passage, the dependent, the curious, and the committed, which one best describes you? I'm saying first say your name. Say your name, where you're from, and then which, which, of this, which of these groups do you think best describes who you are and where you're coming from? The dependent, the curious, or the committed? Um, the second question is, uh, I quoted the Avid Brothers song that says, I was wondering when God left and why he didn't say goodbye. And just asking, where does this resonate with you? Where in your life does this ring true? I was wondering when God left and why he didn't say goodbye. This is an opportunity to be honest about uh, the parts of your lives that, that feel a bit like a horror movie. And then the third question is um, this. Jesus is magnetically drawn to sinners and sufferers in order to extend to them God's grace and mercy. What would it feel like? Just imagine, if you don't believe this, just imagine, what would it feel like to believe that this was true for you? that Jesus is magnetically drawn to sufferers and sinners in order to extend God's grace and mercy to them. What would it, what it, would it feel like to believe that this was true for you? So I want to send you out with a good word, with a benediction, um, a good word from God, and then uh, we're gonna, our musicians have recorded the doxology for you and invite you to sing along to that. So before that, um, our God speaks. He is not silent. He is on the throne and he sends you out into your week with this good word. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Have a great week.